networking doesn't have to mean that you're looking for a job. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of jobs and media, technology, innovation, all different kinds of fun things. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, welcome back. Hi, Joe. Um, it just occurred to me, and even in the pre-show chat we just had, we forgot to mention this. Do we believe that this is officially the 200th episode? Well, it's around 200. Is that technically right? I, I, I think it's like when you put something on an Excel spreadsheet and they leave out the first line. Um, so it, it's close to 200. It depends on when you're listening, but I think this is probably the 200th we've tried to record. We know there were a couple that we recorded that never made it. <laughs> right. Well, um, if this is truly the 200th discrete presentation yep. of the Cusp Show, then congratulations. Um, I'm still waiting for my gold watch from Columbia. I haven't got anything. I don't know about you, uh, but I got a coffee mug yesterday. Crazy to think, Joe, that we um, this this is really insane to think about. A month from a month and a half from now, December of twenty, will be five years that we started this. Remember, it was right before the two thousand sixteen uh, academic year um, with our initial podcasts. So and here we are. Wow. Okay. Fools so, that we are, still going. Okay, cue the applause from the audience. Thank there you. <laughs> anyway. Um, so anyway um, hey, you know, Tom, it's funny that we're, we're doing this show with the guests that we have today because jobs and networking and, and the business that we are in, which is a business of people, is something that we always kind of intimate but never really kind of talk a lot about. Mm-hmm. So kind of what are you doing in a pandemic? And there's no secret that if you're listening to this at the end of October, right before um, things like the election and Halloween, depending on which way you want to kind of go with either one of those, um, there's a lot of news about cutbacks and, and what's going to be next and so much uncertainty, obviously. And I think if you listen to this in April, we'd probably be talking about the same thing from April of last year to now with uncertainty. But um I think one of the good things for people who are leaning forward and not back is to kind of look for what's coming next. And most importantly, what can I do to kind of help move that ball up, up uh, what's a really steep hill? And I think our guest today um, has gone through some ups and downs in the last couple of months, has had a stellar career in a lot of different places. Um, and, you know, it's funny, as we are entering into the first weekend of November, this would normally be the weekend of the New York City Marathon too. Wow, that's true. Yeah. Which, which kind of blew me away when I was thinking about the Boston Marathon for next year already being postponed. Um, but, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit about careers and how we help each other and, and some probably some pretty good back and forth uh, with our guest, Ann Wells Crandall. Ann, thanks for joining us on the Cusp Show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Tom. Really excited yeah. to talk to you. And we've been talking about doing a podcast for like over a year or more. So it's finally happening. And it's a 200th episode. So you're, that's right. This is very special. Um, so, yeah, Joe, that's a good topic. And Anne, I know you and I have had many conversations generally about this issue um, uh, in broader terms. But it is a topic we don't really address, at least publicly. We often do it in private conversations. Certainly, Joe and I talk about it from time to time. But I'm pleased to uh, address this because I think it'll be helpful to a lot of people to hear about it 
Um, Joe, where do we want to start? I mean, I've got some questions. I don't know if you had a, a lead question to get it going. Yeah, I mean, but I think the good thing would be, and not to downplay a lot of the places where ants had a real impact, whether it's the Roadrunners, the Big East, and so many other places before that. But um, there's a lot of, I think, life experience, especially with some of the stuff that Anne's doing on with Wise now and some of the other boards that she's on. But um, why don't you just kind of run us through a little bit like how you got to this point and, and you left the Big East by choice. So uh, as a lot of other people who were un, unceremoniously thrown into the unemployment pool, um, you were looking for what's next and, and you know we're all kind of looking for what's next. So why don't you kind of give us kind of the, the two minute version of how we got to where we are now at the end of October. So I joined the Big East as the first co chief commercial officer in September of 2013. Uh, to me, it was the job of a lifetime, first of all, I was working for someone that I had worked with before and I respected, which is Commissioner Val Ackerman. It's basketball. I love basketball. I'm from upstate New York. So the opportunity to help rebuild, you know, the Big East was for me an opportunity of a lifetime. We accomplished a lot, um, you know, being at the garden and selling out the garden multiple times and a lot of great things we created. But after about five years, Val and I talked and I was really hungry to try something else. I really am a builder. I like coming in and either creating or relaunching or transforming. And that's what Val gave me the opportunity to do. So we talked about it and I uh, left the conference at the beginning of June of 2019, knowing that it would take me you know, some time to find the job that I really wanted. Um, it was definitely taking me out of my comfort zone, but I prepared for it in terms of saving money and all that good stuff. I did all the things that, you know, you're told to do network, 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 meet people. I did all of that. You know, I mm -hmm. talked to both of you last summer and I'm glad I did it. But then all of a sudden, all those great conversation and interviews came to a screeching halt with the pandemic. So in some ways it was good because I was already practicing the quarantining before quarantining was the in thing. Um, and there have definitely been bumps along the road, but to be quite honest, I have found more positives um, than negative, and I'm much more of a positive person anyway. Um, so that's how I got to where I am today. And it was interesting, I know, um, not just from talking to you, but even seeing what you've shared publicly on LinkedIn, that you've been very upfront about your search and some of the challenges. Um, I imagine that was in addition to being probably helpful and maybe cathartic to you, uh, but also probably very helpful to other people because we all know lots of people that are in tough situations right now, either through layoffs or furloughs or just a difficult job market, let's say for Columbia grads from last May, some of them still haven't found employment or even people trying to find a fall internship or a spring right. 2021 internship even, which right. is sad to say, but true. Um, did you get a lot of good feedback on that when you kind of went public? I was amazed. So first of all, when I uh, announced that I was leaving the Big East um, and I really kind of applauded what our partner Madison Square Garden did for me about putting up, you know, a thank you on the MSG marquee. That was just, wow. honestly, I never, never my wildest dreams thought that. So that was um, amazing. And I think that was a springboard. But then when I started um, posting it, I did get a lot of positive response and it was amazing what people always said, the same thing that people said time and time again was, wow, I can't believe you're even sharing it. And I just thought that was so 
I'm glad they said it, but I was just surprised at why don't people share it? I mean, there was, I, you know, I made the decision. I decided to leave whether that was the right decision or not, because I didn't have another job, but I don't know. I just think that more people should support people. I think women in particular should support other women. And it doesn't always have to be about a job. It can just be about, you know, when I talk to both of you, it's, it's nice to connect with somebody that you respect and you trust. I really believe that you always learn something from every conversation. So but it was also, you know, besides, you know, reaching out and helping other people for me, it was good because I was actually, I'm a marketer. I like marketing. Um, so I was really testing to see if LinkedIn worked, you know, what people responded to, what people didn't respond to. Do you post something on a Monday morning or a Friday night? No, you post something Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So for me, it was, you know, it was helpful. I, hopefully I was helpful for other people. It was helpful for me, but as a marketing person, I actually learned a lot and, uh, from it. Let's take a look, um, just to go back a little bit, because you, you mentioned Val, uh, you also had the opportunity to work for another pretty amazing leader who also happens to be a woman in Mary Wittenberg, who Tom and I are obviously big fans of, uh, for a long time at the Roadrunners, and you've worked at the NBA and the Pac-12 networks. When you get to the point now where you're looking for something else, what are some of the lessons you learn from people like Mary Wittenberg and David Stern and um, that, that you've been able to apply to this period where you haven't been able to find something and, and a lot of people have come to you for mentorship. What are some of the ideas or the, or the lessons that you learned from all those places that you've been, that you've been able to kind of package together for today as well? Well, you're right. I, I say it all the time. I've been one of the most fortunate people in business um, because I've worked for such great people and honestly at terrific times in the, you know, the trajectory of both all those companies um, you know, the first thing is the hardest part for me was every single one of those jobs, uh, I didn't have to necessarily search for them. I was recommended by somebody for those jobs. And so this is the first time that I've ever had to really go out and sell Ann Wells Crandall, which I don't like doing at all. I can't stand it. Um, so what I have learned is, and Val must say it, it le any podcast that Val is ever on or any interview, she says the same thing, is relationships, relationships, relationships. So I maintain the relationships I had and also build new ones, but I had to do it in my way. There's a lot of people who do networking in their own way and some of them I don't agree with. So I've learned how through trial and error, believe me, I didn't know how to do it my way in the beginning, is I was, I'm just my authentic self. I'm not going to post 29 times on LinkedIn a day or all those things. So I've learned to, to, it's okay to be yourself and it's okay to be, to have your own voice versus what people tell you to do. Um, what I did not do when I was working, because I'm really one of those people that once I get into a job, I'm in 180% and my head's down, is I didn't network so much when I was working in all those jobs. I really felt that that was being somewhat disloyal to the organization, which is ridiculous. Um, so that's one thing that I tell people now is networking doesn't have to mean that you're looking for a job. Networking is just talking to people, meeting new people and asking thoughtful questions. Um, somebody asked me the other day, so what do you say when you talk to somebody? I said, I personally have to have a reason for why I'm talking to them. I've either read something they've written or I've listen to them on a panel or like listen to them on a podcast, but that's how I do it. That's how I feel comfortable. So I, I try to explain to people, you have to figure out for yourself who you, 
who you want to be, what you want to be known for, and do it in an authentic way. So I really think that people see through it. Um, to the other question, I'm, oh my God, Anna, what's it like to be a woman in sports? And I, I hate that question because I'm just, I'm just a, a business person in sports. And I've been lucky that Mary felt the same way. Mary Wittenberg, Val definitely feels the same way. I worked for phenomenal people at the NBA who I don't think ever really thought of it as Anne is the woman in sports and we have to prop up the, the woman in sports. I just think that I, I work really hard. I'm really passionate about what I do and I like to learn. Um, but I don't think it, ha I, I hope, I don't think it has anything to do with me being a woman. So all those experiences, I mean, Harry Stevenson was a boss of mine at the NBA who then recruited me to the Pac-12 networks, who then told me, you know, you should call Val about the Big East Conference. So, you know, it wasn't about Anne being a woman or it wasn't about, um, you know, anything other than Anne's a really good worker, she'll work harder than anybody else. And related to that point, uh, how would you characterize the state of gender balance in the sports business in 2020 compared to when, when we all first got involved, which was in the 1990s, so 20 plus years ago? Um, and be on, I mean, be honest, because I know you're involved with WISE, which we want to hear about, but be honest, because right. Joe and I get into this topic a lot and um, have our own thoughts on this, but, but your, your opinion is more important right now. I definitely think that women are, you know, given more opportunities, but I don't think they're given opportunities. I think women are realizing that they can do the same jobs as men do and vice versa. So I think there have been more opportunities, but there also have been more, you know, sports in general, there have been more media outlets, there have been more platforms. So I think that helps. Um, but honestly, the decision makers, I don't know if that's really changed that much. And that's, that's, that's unfortunate. Even, you know, Joe and I, Joe and I have lamented about the fact that even in the organization, which you're uh, intimately familiar with and participating in NYBC sports, and Joe and I have been involved for a long time, um, we're always disappointed by the amount of gender balance we get at our events. We've tried um, in different ways to improve that, but can't seem to break through. Um, what do you think can catalyze more change to get more balance, not just in the C-suites, which where it's, I think, statistically needed for, for sure, but also with young people, like the people from the Columbia program or these other sports management programs, females, trying to, trying to develop their careers in the business. Well, I'm so glad you asked me that question. So a couple of things. One is I think there needs to be more partnerships between for example, NYBC Sports and WISE, you know, New York City Metro. I think more collaborations amongst trade organizations in our industry, it's, it's a no-brainer. And I've actually recommended that. So I think that would be huge. Uh, there's a statistic, never say that, statistic out there that says that 85% of the jobs that people get are the result of networking. And the other statistic that's alarming is a lot of women don't do it. Mm -hmm. So that's no fault of the quote unquote white males that don't hire women in jobs. It's men are much better and feel, I think, feel much more comfortable doing it than women do. Third, I think that networking has a, not a negative connotation, but I think that people believe you only network when you need a job. And I think that doesn't help the situation either. 
I think there are a lot of female women conferences. Why are they just women? Why aren't there some of those decision makers? You know, I've talked to Abe about it, you know, at uh, Game Changers. I was one of the inaugural Game Changers and I keep saying, why are we listening to women to talk on and on about all these issues? They have every right to talk about them, but nothing is going to change unless we have those powerful people, whether they're men or women, talking about what they're gonna do about it. You know what I mean? I, that's just been a frustration of mine for a very, very long time. So I don't think it's just the decision makers fault. I think it's, everyone has to pitch in in different ways. I, I think one of the things that you touched on, and it's funny, bringing your friends to meet my friends, not literally your friends and my friends, is a great idea that, that you know, you have, I mean, we're zoomed out. There's too many Zoom conferences right now, but you know, eventually at some point when you get back, why wouldn't you have groups who, I guess the problem is they're trying to literally sell a ticket to somebody and they're not thinking about working together and we sit in a different place where we can do that. One of the things that, especially talking about WISE uh, is the mentoring side. And every time, you know, the conversations I've had with Val over the years, she always talks about how a male, David Stern, mentored her and got her through the process. Right grow at the NBA and eventually become the commissioner of the WNBA. Um, the mentoring process, talk a little bit about that, but also the ability, how hard is it or, or how much more of an opportunity is it for um, men who are in a position of, of influence who want to help women should always, I think, should always think about who are the women and the, and the, the younger people who are coming up who I can influence as opposed to the people who are exactly the ones in front of me, the, the male female kind of mentoring program in both ways, actually, you know, how, how do you think that should play out and is it playing out better and, and could wise be more involved with that? Well, I think, I think a lot of organizations, no matter what the organization is, always goes to women first to be mentors. I don't know why, but they do. So I think any organization that has a mentoring program should reach out to more men because I believe, I think a lot of men would do it. I think that they're just not given the opportunity or they don't know about it. Um, one of the programs that Val and I were a part of for every year that I was at the Big East Conference was a program from the State Department and the University of Tennessee, um, you know, the Global Sports Mentoring Program, which was really an international program where you, you know, women from outside the US had to apply for it. And there was a pretty rigorous process, but I was a mentor for a woman who, uh, was from Vietnam was my first, nah. Uh, then I had a woman from Argentina. Then I had a woman from uh, the Congo. Then I had, and I'm forgetting somebody and I feel really horrible about it, but my point is it was a very well-structured program and I learned more from them than they learned from me. I thought it was just amazing what these women did. Um, I've been a wise mentor for a number of times I, now I'm the supervisor, mentor, I call her, mentee, I call her from Endicott College, who's uh, working with us at the WISE New York City Metro chapter. I love it. I think it's one of the most gratifying uh, roles that someone could have, but I just think there needs to be more promotion of it, and it doesn't take all that much time. It, so I think there's, in all these examples, all these questions you're asking me, I think there's a lot of misnomers out there. And there just needs to be a way to explain what they true those opportunities really are. Yeah, don't and don't you and you and I have talked about this specific point, but what I've come to learn through my network of friends and acquaintances who are in some 
some type of mentorship role is that they really enjoy it. As you said, they get a lot out of it. And that's what I say to some of my friends who maybe have not been as active with working with young people or helping young people or mentoring in any formal way. And I always say, it doesn't have to be some formal program. It's just do what you can when you can. Uh, it's somewhat opportunistic. So if you're asked to speak to a person who's interested in getting in sports, which I think probably happens to the three of us quite a bit, I, I always do that. And, and it's nice to help. I think it's, I think that's one thing we've learned this year, Joe, back to your point when you set up the show, um, that we've learned this year, whether it's for people in tough professional situations or tough personal or health situations, like everybody needs some help in one fashion or another. And when you do provide that help, it usually is nourishing uh, in one way or another to you. And I know the people that either have visited class or, or, or involved in trade groups and mentoring usually feel really good about it, as you said. So um, follow up to Joe's question. What does is, what is that role look like for you and WISE as the WISE mentor? What practically are you doing? So before we do that, let's not make yeah. an assumption. Anne, can you explain to everybody what WISE is? Oh, yeah. Good question, Joe. Very good. Right. So uh, WISE is Women in Sports and Events. Uh, it's a national organization that has, I think, 25 plus chapters now. So I am on the board. I'm the marketing chairperson now for WISE New York City Metro, um, which, is, which is phenomenal. So a mentor, I think, Tom, you're going to ask me, like, what is a mentor uh, from wise do is that what you're going to ask me? Yeah, like just as a practical as, as a practical aspect of it. There's the idea of mentoring, and then there's actually doing the mentoring. So what does that look like? So uh, two examples. So the probably the most recent is this um, this intern that we have from Endicott College. So she's getting credit, you know, for this quote unquote internship. Um, but I I say, I talk to her twice a week on the phone, and I give her assignments. And I say to her, you know, this internship is for WISE New York City Metro, but I really believe that my job is not only that, but I want to share with you lessons that I've learned, reasons why things happen the way they do. You know, you send a proposal and you get no feedback. Well, it's not that the person hasn't, doesn't think it's good. It's that maybe they didn't see it. You know, like I didn't get Joe's email yesterday. He resent it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of little things like that that you don't think are important um, that I think, I feel like I have to tell her. So for example, I asked her to write a call recap, call recap memo from our call yesterday with someone we presented to. And it was, you know, she did a good job, but I explained to her all the things that were not in there that should be in there. For example, this is a document you, you, Alexis, the intern wants to have. So when you look back on it a month from now, a year from now, you know why you had the call. So it's not just to recap the call. There's other reasons why you should document this. And she said, I, I would never have thought of that. So, uh, you know, I think that's part of what we need to, to um, talk about. I've had another mentee who's now on the board, actually. So it's nice to see my child, so to speak, grow up. Um, and I think, you know, she, she was very, um, she liked the structure of the program, but I said to her all the time, you don't have to just see me once a month please, I actually do, don't do well with that. I do much better with a more regular communication. Please email me if you have an issue and you just want to, you know, a shoulder to talk to or cry on or whatever. So I think the mentee and the mentor 
have to give as much to it as as supposedly the mentor does. If the mentee is not really engaged in it and they really want to get something from it versus just putting it on their resume, um, those are the successful relationships. I think that you know every like any relationship, everybody has to contribute to it. And I and I assume you're okay with the idea of giving a little tough love when required. <laughs> as you know, I, I am. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, because but I'm you not, were, you, I'm not the you know I'm not the family member. I'm not the family member. And I'm not the right. boss. So right. I don't think people get as defensive if I say it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting point for those of us who have managed people. You know, we have our style of managing and expectations, but we do have to remind ourselves whether for me and Joe as teachers, there's a different dynamic with the student as opposed to an employee, and there is a, still a third dynamic that you'd have with the mentee. That said, I'd like Joe's opinion on this too, because I know a lot of people reach out to him. It does feel like the tough love is very valuable. So for example, you could, you could describe what you just described as tough love or just constructive feedback, which is the way, what I would call it. Um, but it feels like that, um, the style in which you provide that feedback is kind of important uh, based on the, the nature of the relationship of one of those three categories. Joe, well, what, what say you, Joe? Reading the room is, is probably one of the the lost arts of a lot of people um, and knowing who it is that you're talking to. And frankly, you know, there are, this takes time to do and, and it takes interest to do. And there are many people I think that look at it and say, oh, I want a mentor. I want to be on a board or I want to volunteer not really understanding that that's another job and it takes time and you actually have to be able to listen. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found valuable is taking something away from someone you're mentoring that you had no idea about. And, you know, yeah, Tom, you know, somebody like Buster share on our show twice and you're related to Buster and I've been around Buster for a long time, but people like him and Jeff Eisenband and Gina Antoniello, you know, I learned something from them or I try to learn something from them about what they're doing and what they're going through that frankly, I had no idea about. So, mm -hmm. so that's, that's a big part of it, I think, is being able to figure out how it really becomes kind of a, a give and take, but also knowing, taking the time to know who it is that you're trying to mentor and realize, oh, this person's had this issue, or you know, this person is really good at this, and you have to push them to that until they say, no, I don't want to do it anymore, or they, they want to do it their way. So it's got to be kind of a give and take. I think that's the most valuable kind, and you know, that's you know, as opposed to just kind of rattling off the same five or six things when you don't really know about them. And then after five minutes, you're at the end of a conversation and, you know, everybody's kind of looking at their watches or their Zoom call as to when the timer is going to run out. You know, what I so also I said to people, too, is think about the intangibles that you're going to get. So, for example, when you're listening to a Zoom call, um, how are people speaking? Are they looking directly in the camera? Are they saying the same thing all the time? Do they say like or so all the time? Uh, do they answer the question? You know, how does the interviewee ask questions? I mean, there's a lot, you can learn from every single, every single event, but to your point, Joe, you have to be, you have to want to do that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's too. I also think it's important. One thing I try to do is maybe without asking directly, but getting a sense of what other authority figures in their lives do they have and what what kind of instruction or advice are they getting vis-a-vis -vis these professional matters that we discuss so for example i know some people don't have uh 
that good self-editing tool or copy editing tool, and Anna and I have talked about this numerous times, where they just sometimes do sloppy work. And then, which, which is anathema to me personally, and I will usually be a little annoyed at first, and then, I'm, and then I try to be more thoughtful, but I say, well, maybe there's, maybe no one's ever pushed them on this before. Maybe they went to college and didn't have tough teachers. And when I say tough, I would say responsible. Uh, I mean responsible, because to me, it's pretty basic ante into the game. And when I do provide that feedback, if I've made that determination, I will kind of put it out there, be a little bit more direct on that kind of feedback. And if I do sense some discomfort or some pushback, I will, if appropriate, make the point. I said, look, you may not agree with what I'm saying, but I'm giving you what the best I got from all my numerous experiences, like your guys' experiences, because I learn from people along the way. And I, it's not fun taking that criticism, constructive criticism sometimes, but I'm not sure, el sure how else, unless there's another influence in their lives that are providing it, you improve. Mm -hmm. Joe? Um, I had a question along those lines, having worked when you worked at the Big East, Dan, and you know, kind of like the NBA where the owners are, you know, 30 nation states. Um, how is it building consensus and especially in a job like you had, trying to get universities of various sizes with various outlooks in various markets to kind of all row or at least most of them row in the same direction from a marketing standpoint? What was that like? And what were some of the things that you learned from, you know, learning from, you know, St. John's and Seton Hall to Creighton and Yukon and, and Marquette and, and you know, even earlier on with, with some of the other schools. I think you, the first thing that you have to do, especially you know, if you're new to an organization like that, any organization, but that you know, we had 10 schools, five in the Northeast, five in the Midwest. Um, you have to have a listening tour. So you, ha you have to understand that every single institution is different. Not every institution is gonna prioritize the same way that you might think they should. Uh, their, you know, their athletic departments may not be as big as another. So you really have to understand where that institution, where that group is coming from, number one. Second thing I did was just figure out where does marketing even fit in? Because uh, the old Big East didn't have to. I mean, look, you know, uh, their men's basketball record was unparalleled. That's, a, that's what everybody marketing fit in. Um, and then I asked their opinion. You know, I didn't say this is the way it is or, or else. I really said, this is, this is what I think we need to do. And here's why. What do you think? And I asked their feedback. Um, you know, one of the first people that I spoke to that I still keep in touch with, um, you know, Dan from uh, Georgetown, he was the second person I think I spoke to. And he, I asked him, you know, straight, you know, the straight story about everything. There was maybe the second year I was there, I established a marketing council, um, which was once a month, all the marketing uh, senior executives would get together. I ran the call, but I gave them a chance to ask questions. I presented items. I asked them to present agenda items. And it was just a, a you know an appointment on the calendar, if you will, every single month that we were forced to talk to one another. Um, you know, one of the things that we I had to work on was selling tickets to the men's basketball tournament in the past there was no public ticket sale. You know, they had 16 teams. Those seats were divided up amongst the schools and the schools, you know, sold them or however they divvied them up. And so now I'm charged, you know, 
and I'm responsible for the revenue. So now I'm saying to them, well, here's what the prices are gonna be. And that was a real challenge, but I explained to them why the prices had to be the way they were when we had a price increase, why we were doing it. I listened to them, of course, they're not gonna like it, but I knew that they weren't gonna like it. So I was sensitive to that. So, you know, it's not any different than um, any relationship, but it definitely was a different dynamic than say it was at the MBA. Uh, college is very different in the way it's structured. Um, so again, I look at that as another learning experience. You know, I didn't come from college. I was from, you know, pro sports. Um, so it was definitely, I had to be willing to learn and I had to be willing to listen, even though I'm not the most patient person in the world. All right, Joe, can we, uh, we got to get, we gotta get uh, a former, what was that? You should touch on the Roadrunners too, before we leave Ann's career too. So. Yeah, but I want to, I want to ask a bit more, uh, a timely business issue that I'd appreciate Ann's opinion about since it's so hot an issue right now. And that is about NIL coming to college summer 21. So want to get your thoughts on that generally, but also I don't know if you saw the story that just broke in LA that USC is actually launch, launching a whole media and creative studio for its athletes. It's called B, I'm reading this from an from a article I just read. It's the launch of BLVD studio, Studios, its new in-house creative lab for branding and player-driven content for all its athletes. They're determined, this is a quote, they're determined to go big. So good idea, bad idea, is all hell gonna break loose this summer? Give us your perspective. A great idea because I think it's, you know, it's one of those things the grass is always greener on the other side. I think um, unless you've had to, you know, market something or yourself, um, you know, or a brand or a product or an event, it's a lot more challenging than you think. And so now you're saying, you know, I'm the greatest lacrosse player and I think that I'm going to make a lot of money through an Instagram post. You know, it, it's not that easy. So I think having people who do it and can guide the student athletes is really helpful and really necessary. Um, so I think it's 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 great and probably you know something that should have happened you know a while ago. Even you know we had to wait for the legislation, obviously. But I think it's a great I, I think it's a great idea, not just from a making money standpoint, but just an education and how business works um, is also good. Um, whether they make money or not, I think it's a great um, opportunity to learn how business plays a role in everything that we do. How, how, far down, how far down the long tail of college sports might NIL activations happen? Should we, will we be seeing fencers from Columbia College in New York City get doing, doing NIL deals as National well as basketball players from Georgetown? I know, that's one reason I, I mentioned it, Joe. I mean, there were two, um, you know, players on the Georgetown men's basketball team who came in uh, to the team with phenomenal followings. So I think it really just depends on the athlete and what their following is like, but also with their interest in it. You know, not every, not every student athlete who's a great athlete wants to do that. So I think it's, I, I think it's a great, like I said, I think it's a great opportunity and I don't think it's defined by what sport you play uh, or what school you go to. I think it's really based on, you know, what you, the athlete wants to do. So before, um, before we get to, uh, and I want to double back on, on the Roadrunners and how that was a different job and, and what that's like working there. But the last point about the NIL thing tied to the Big East is, is that something that a conference could proactively come into versus, let's say, Larry Scott at the Pac-12 says, 
it's great that USC is doing this. Let's make sure this is a best practice across all our schools. Or is that overstepping the bounds of what a conference office should be doing with their schools in terms of an hour? Well, the good thing is I think every conference is different. Um, and it's really up to, again, the dialogue between the conference office and the schools. I mean, some you know, some school, some conferences or some institutions want the conference to do it because they don't have the resources to do it or the expertise to do it. So I think it really depends. Um, you know, I, I, every conference is different, so I can't really speak to any how anybody else do it does it. Rather, it just depends on the relationship with the schools and uh, the conference. Doubling back, let's talk a little bit about the Roadrunners. What was it like? What did you do? How is that different from the NBA and the Big East on, kind of on both sides of that? And I also want to know, Anne, if, if, if you were still working there and the, and the marathon were happening Sunday, meaning two days from now, what would you be doing on the Friday afternoon before marathon Sunday? <laughs> uh, well, um, I'll take the first one. The Joe's question is easier. Um, it was the coolest job of all time. I mean, so don't forget, I started January of 2020, 2001. So wow. first of all, first of all, I went from the National Basketball Association when the Knicks were really good. Um, and the NBA was really starting, I think it's, it's climb. So I, I left and, you know, joined New York Roadrunners. And that was a time, Tom, you'll laugh, is when, when I said, where are you going? When people said, where are you going? I said, New York Roadrunners. Oh, you're going to work for Time Warner Cable, Roadrunners. <laughs> I mean, so talk about, um, you know, a brand positioning. No one even knew what New York Roadrunners was. Um, so that was an interesting, I didn't even think about that. So I went from working at 645 Fifth Avenue, heart of Manhattan, to a brownstone on 89th between 5th and Madison. I mean, come on. Uh, we didn't have an elevator and the elevator that we did have never worked and I was scared to death to go in it. Um, so I had to walk up, you know, four, five flights of stairs every day. But the reason why it was so cool is on the first floor, that's where all the runners would come in on Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays to pick up their t-shirt and their bib. So on the first floor, you had your customer. You know, you were right in front of your customer every single day, whether you liked it or not. I loved it. And then you go upstairs and that's where the, you know, quote unquote, the business is. So, so here's what happened. So I was there January of 2001 and I'm the business person. Who wants her? I mean, she's a business person. She's not wearing shorts. You know, she's like, and who were you working for? Who hired you? So Mary hired me, but Mary, oh, it was, Mary. Okay. Mary was the COO at the time. And Alan was, you know, the president. It was, when I started, it wasn't even New York Roadrunners. It was New York Roadrunners Club. So here I am. So I'm in like, I don't know, my third, and I'm hired as VP of sales and marketing. In other words, bring in sponsorship money. That's really what the job was. So here I am. Um, and I was not a salesperson before. I worked on deals, but I was not responsible completely for bringing money in, or as I like to say, fired if I didn't bring in money. So here I am calling up, let's say it's UPS. Hi, and my married name was Heingarter at the time. So here I am. Hi, I'm Ann Wells Crandall Heingartner calling from New York Roadrunners Club. I mean, who is listening to me? So I remember after doing that for like three or four times, I went into Alan and Mary and I said, look, we have got to get rid of that club word. Now, that, I, I should have gone to hell in a handbasket if I said that, because at the time, it was a membership-driven organization. It was a local running club, blah, 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 blah. So that was the first hurdle. Um, 
but you know, it was quirky. We worked in a brownstone. Um, it was not a corporate environment at all. It had so many assets that were untapped. And that's what I loved about it. It was, and so if you were willing to work, which I was, and work on all those things, you, Mary said, at the end of the day, you know, you're responsible for sponsorship sales. You got to do that. Then I became in charge of membership. Then a couple of years later, I was in charge of the merchandise business. Then a couple of years later, I was in charge of the international tour operators or, you know, the travel agents at the time, if you will, that brought the international runners over. We started a charity program. I mean, it was a builder's dream. It was so cool. It was unbelievable. And you worked on an event that everybody knew, which is really helpful. Um, but we also developed all these other races. So New York Roadrunners became a global lifestyle brand, not just a local running club community brand. It was, it was phenomenal. Really, really so, so unique. I mean, but I've, I've never worked harder in my life than I worked there. I worked six days a week because I was in charge of sponsorship and a lot of the relationships. I had to go to, every, I went to every single event. So, so your first, so your first marathon was the the one right after 9-11. Right. I'm glad you reminded wow. me. So yeah. seven months in, Rudy Giuliani comes up and says, you have to put the marathon on. No matter what you do, it's obviously going to be different. Okay. So we did all that. The night before, Tom Ridge, remember Tom Ridge? Mm -hmm. Homeland Security. Tom Ridge called, literally called up when we were in the trailer at the finish line in the park and said, um, something's going on. You've got to change everything. I mean, those sponsors didn't know me. And I had to call up a couple of them and say, no, you can't have your activation on the course. I mean, it was such a good experience. Um, we had an a pro athlete die on our course, I think in 2007 or 2008. Uh, that was, un uh, you know, something that no one really talks about, but that was my first experience with that. And then Hurricane Sandy is, is the experience of, of a lifetime in not a good way, obviously, but you really understand all the things that you have to think about in, in an unplanned situation. And so I use that a lot when people ask me lessons I've learned in business. Um, that's, that's one of them. I learned more that week than I've learned in a lot of other cases. Wow. So just last question about uh, the marathon. Um, how insane was it the days leading up, I, I, I'm curious because I can only imagine. It, it um, and as the years went by, you know, it was the marathon and it was the, you know, the pasta party the night before. And that's all people really talked about. But in order to bring in, you know, more sponsors and more revenue, we had to create more assets. So we turned the marathon, a one day event that people talked about to a marathon week. So every single day, the week of, we had a huge event, which garnered, I'm sure Joe was there, which garnered, you know, a lot of press. Um, and then I can't remember what year I did this. It might've been 2010. Um, and I was in charge of the merchandise business. I created what I call Marathon Monday. So another way to extend, you know, the week, but also to sell more merchandise. So the tent that's up in a Central Park, you know, this added to Tavern on the Green, um, you know, the tent, cost us X amount of money to keep up. So I found out how much more money does that cost us to keep? And we turned it into a huge 
um, merchandise store where it was all the marathon finisher merchandise. And honestly, I, like I thought, who's buying that? I mean, how can we make really that much money with people buying marathon finisher merchandise? It's unbet. We had a line all the way down Central Park West. We added the, um, um, oh God, the medals where you could um, put your name on it. We put the New York Times in there so they could get another sponsorship benefit. ASICS was our marathon partner at the time. So they made a lot more money. Uh, Poland Spring gave out water. I mean, we created a whole, another event that gave us more publicity, more sponsorship, you know, value and kind opportunities and obviously the merchandise business. So when you think about it, every single day for a week, don't forget the expo, that's a huge issue. Uh, not a huge issue, a huge, you know, huge event. So it was, you know, maybe five events all in one, but I'm gonna tell you, if you, if you like New York City, if you like working at events, uh, you love running, you love being out, you know, with people, it, it, was, it was unbelievable. The marathon is, like, I've already started thinking about wow, what would I be doing tonight? Or what, what would I be doing on, uh, and so on Sunday, I know that the park is gonna be packed with people running celebration of the marathon, it's not gonna happen. And it would have been the 50th, this is the 50th anniversary, correct? Yeah. Wow. wow. Because Hurricane Sandy year, the day of the marathon, I ran in the park that day. And there were so many people that ran a certain distance, but a lot of people ran all four loops to get to the same, you know, 26.2 miles. You know, I was thinking out as you were describing the development of the marathon to be more than a, a weekend affair is how it's interesting that the three of us experienced the era of the extended event. So I was at the NFL in the year that Don Garber and John Bellow started the NFL experience, which you guys know about. And it went from being uh, um, a weekend that focused on Saturday, Sunday to be a week to, to being a Wednesday through Sunday week, roughly, and then even longer later than the NBA did its thing. I, and what was it called? The NBA experience or something like that? Yeah. Wow. I can't remember. Well, they yeah. launched the tech summit, for example, on oh, Friday. Oh yeah, the tech summit. Yeah, the tech In other summit. In other words, everybody was under the, I mean, you, you, you hit a point that's quite interesting. Everybody was, I think, under pressure revenue wise to deliver more assets for sponsors, get more fans to do more things, more engagement, more merch sales, et cetera. And now it's hard to think of an event that doesn't last five or seven days. Well, the other reason I explained this yesterday, um, you already have everybody paying attention to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you already have all this set up. Mm -hmm. So why not extend it? It's, it's actually less expensive to do it that way versus starting a whole different event. Right. All the media, especially in New York, but around the world are talking about the marathon. Yeah. And you already have all your partners in town and you have all of your, you know, it just makes, when you think about it like that, it just makes a lot more sense. So at the Big East, we didn't have a huge, uh, you know, marketing budget. So what I was saying to Val is, look, I have to promote ticket sales, but that's when people are thinking about the Big East and the men's bat and men's basketball in particular, forget the tournament for a second. So why don't I spend my marketing dollars to promote the Big East at the same time? Because that's when people are thinking about us. They're not necessarily thinking about the Big East Conference in September. Yeah. And Joe, did, Joe, didn't that happen at the US Open too? Yes, the Open, it's funny. I know it was one of the, the sadder moments of this fall. And I always think of the fall begins with Labor Day, which is the middle weekend of the US Open. And it usually ends with the New York City Marathon. And that's yep. the way I have a lot exactly. of fall. Yeah. And when I started in, I was at the WTA in 98 and then went to the USTA in 2000. 
preceded Arlen Cantarian in the door. <laughs> nobody ever really precedes Arlen anywhere that he goes. That's true. Other than his reputation. <laughs> but uh, but um, Pierce O'Neill, one of the one of the first conversations we had in a position that was new when I was went, went there was, and I remember Terry Lefton was the first person who wrote it was the goal of the Open at that was to take a two week tennis event and make it into a global spectacle that lived for six to eight weeks at least. And now obviously the Open is will hopefully be back to where it was. And hopefully at this time next year, we're talking about a great US Open and hopefully a great New York City Marathon. You know, hopefully we're back to that point, but that's that's fall in New York. And because frankly, other than, you know, a couple of relief seasons from the New York Giants, there is no real football in New York and there hasn't been for a long time with the Giants and the Jets. Um, and, you know, it's this is now we are now not to be another downer. We're in the longest stretch in the history of New York City without a championship in any sport. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. Yes. It's not, it's not like, you know, fall's been great to us, you know, been good to some Yankee fans, been wistful to many Mets fans, although we are doing this at, at the moment that Steve Cohen has now bought officially bought the New York Mets. I saw that. Yeah. And by the way, and not, not to digress, but Noah Syndergaard uh, put out something on Instagram with a picture of the lead character in Billions who now owns the, you know, the, that, that, um, yeah, yeah. Now owns Axe now owns the the Mets. So, so hopefully you know next year at this time we're looking back on different things. But that's what the Open was. The Open was an expansion of of a marketing event in New York, just like the marathon is the largest single one day sporting event. It's funny because when I when I got to the Big East and Val agreed with me, I said, you know what, we should there should be some type of an alliance between the U.S. Open, the New York City Marathon, and the Big East Men's Basketball Tournament, yeah. because all three of them are quintessential New York City events, and yet all of them are much bigger than New York City. Um, and so we talked about it, but we never got it off the ground, but it really, you know, Lou Shear and I talked about it a couple of times. It just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Anyway, wow. wrap us up, Tom? Yeah, so, and we already got a lot of insights from you about career stuff, but we would like to ask you more pointedly if you can offer any specific advice to, especially to the young people listening who are either looking for jobs or trying to move on or develop their careers. Okay, so number one, um, use this time to learn new things. Tom, I think I've told you this a million times, but I think I've taken 32 online courses in the last 17 months. I've taken everything from Economics 101 to data vis visualization. Uh, I'm now certified in Google AdWords, Google Beginner and Advanced Analytics. Um, it does two things. One, when people say, so what are you doing? You can say, this is what I'm doing, number, number two, you actually are learning something and you feel good about yourself, which during this time is really a challenge is every day to get up and say, okay, let's search for another job opportunity. Um, secondly is get involved. So, and get involved, meaning if there's a way for you to use the skills that you're being paid for, you know, in your job, um, apply them. So that's why, you know, I became more involved in WISE. I just joined Another board today, I'm on the Arthritis Foundation board. I've been talking to you guys about NYBC sports. I mean, that keeps my head in the game, but I also personally feel like I'm giving back and I'm doing something that is needed. Uh, so I think that's, you know, really um, important. Um, and I think you got to stay positive. There's got to be something during the day that makes you feel good about it. Um, fourth, you don't have to apply for every single job because it's going to be disappointing. <laughs> It's so hard, but 
just because you 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 know you wrote your resume once or you wrote your LinkedIn profile once, I can't tell you how many times I've changed my LinkedIn profile. I did it again yesterday after talking to Jeff. I mean, I do it constantly because I'm, again, I'm a marketer, so I like to see if that makes any bit of difference. Right. Uh, each time I talk to somebody, I learn something about myself that maybe I didn't talk about before that will make that profile more engaging. And I think LinkedIn is the greatest thing in it's so good. It's so, so helpful. Um, and it's a great way to figure out, um, you know, find people that you might not otherwise know. They just launched something cool today uh, that helps people with job search. So, but you got to talk to people. Got to talk and to people. What, let, let me just ask one quick follow-up. So there's always the question, particularly with younger people that may not have the network that would help them to network into the opportunity. Uh, where they have to decide whether they're going to apply apply coldly, like apply now, and suddenly they're just one of five thousand people submitting an application. What do you think of that for people? Is there a better option, especially for people that don't have that network to tap into yet? Well, um, I don't like networking. I don't like calling up people that I don't know because I think it sounds just bizarre. Um, so all the content that I listen to, you know, I've. I've listened, I listened to every single sports hiatus over the summer. I listened to so much content. And if there was somebody on the panel that I liked that I wanted to have a reason to talk to, I used that as a way to talk to them. Yeah. Because to me, that was authentic. I'm not good. I'm just not, I'm never going to be great at just calling up somebody like, if I never met Sam, I'm not going to say, hey, Sam, you know, you want to connect with me? I mean, it's, it's just not going to work. Um, so that's how I've done it. Um, every time I've talked to people like Tom last summer, I talked to you and I even hate asking this question, Tom, is there anybody that you, you can think of that I should talk to? Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody's not going to, not every person is going to give you somebody that's quote unquote worthwhile, but you have to, um, that's why my, answer, to my answer was Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Tom actually gave me a lot of people. And, it was, and one thing that was good about it is that I knew a lot of the people had already talked to a lot of those people. So that was right. helpful helpful too. Um, but LinkedIn, besides networking, has a lot of great content. So making sure that you're following a lot of, you know, keep your followers broadly so you can um, tap into them. If they write something that you agree with or don't agree with, you should comment on it, not just hit the like button. Um, so the problem is there's no tried and true answer. You have to do a lot and you can say, well, you know what? I've done all these things. I've done all these things and nothing's happening. You've got to keep doing them. Yeah. I, I quote it. I, I say it's very similar to the running. Yeah. You can be a great runner, but you know what? Every day is not going to be a great running day and you're probably never going to win a race, but you keep doing it because it's something that you want to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, a good it's answer. just not easy. Right. Yeah, it's just not easy. It's like fishing too. Same thing. All right. And then the <laughs> last question. The you Giants play football, right? Our last uh, question of our podcast is always about making yourself, keeping yourself current, staying smart, learning new things. You've kind of answered a lot of this already, but specifically, you've mentioned that you listen to podcasts. You obviously follow uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, things like that. Are there specific podcasts you'd like to mention or books or uh, newsletters that might be of interest to everybody to hear? So besides your podcast, obviously. Okay, good answer. Um, and Sports Hiatus. Uh, I think that Sports Innovation Lab has done an incredible job with, um, and for one big reason, Josh Walker. I mean, he asks 
best questions and gets a lot of good information. I, I'm a big walker, so I was walking all the way down the west side, and he did it in um, an interview a couple weeks ago with Mika Morris. Uh, hopefully that's her right last name. I actually stopped walking and put it on pause and like took notes on it. I, I think that what they do is Sports Innovation Lab, and I've talked to them a couple of times, they have done a great job. I think that Scott Sosnick and Sportico, that's become one of my go-tos. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm a morning consult uh, fan. Um, I'm a social media today person. Um, HubSpot, I think has tremendous um, you know, content. Um, I follow all the leaks. Uh, what else do I do? Um, any, you know, any direct to consumer marketing that I can find, because that's really what I am at the end of the day. Um, and then, you know, honestly, I, I constantly Google top 10 podcasts, top 10 business podcasts, top 10 sports podcasts. So that helps, you know, a great deal. And then I ask people, you know, what are some great, you know, newsletters or podcasts that you listen to? Um, so... That's what I do. Yeah. And that's why we ask our guests, because I always like to cross reference things. And if I if I see that um, a bunch of people are listening or following the same thing, obviously, I'm smart enough to check it out. And then usually it syncs up with what I'm interested in. And I think that's a good way to curate. All right. That was great. Thanks. It was Sam. fun. It was fun. Yeah. Joe, what, awesome. any final words or wrapping, no, think, wrapping thoughts? Um, in, in all honesty, I, there are certain things that have just confounded me right now. And there, there are, I don't want to say who the other three or four are, but there's a gang of three or four that I just can't figure out why they haven't landed a place yet, but I can't wait to find out where they're going to land. And Anne's obviously on the top of that list because it doesn't Thank make you. sense to Thank me. You. And, you know, and then, you know, she'll be bringing some, uh, somebody else for the podcast when she gets the job <laughs> in the very near future. That's right. Well, That's good well the fact that you mentioned Terry Lefton, so now his ego is going to get even bigger. So be careful. Be careful with that. Yeah. Well, he's an ego fan, so he and I battle every Sunday. All right, Joe, you want to uh, wrap it up? Yep. So, oh, mo most importantly, Anne, where can we? Oh, yes. Let her, she's a marketer. She's got to promote herself now. That's right. So, uh, email is really the best. Um, so it's Crandall, C-R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and A-N-N, no E, at ymail.com. And yes, it is Ymail. It's not Gmail. It's Ymail. Everybody it's, super, it's a super exclusive Google account no one knows about. Well, everybody changes it because they feel that I don't know my own email, I guess. But it's CrandallAnn at ymail.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn, too. It's, I'm a LinkedIn person. Great. And Twitter. Twitter. No, not really. I was well, I, I I I use it for news, and I fo you know follow okay. you guys to see what you're talking All right. about. All right. All right. Cool. All right. Well, once again, um, this has been uh, Joe Favorito with my co-host Tom Richardson. Our guest today has been Ann Wells Crandall on the Cusp Show. We'll see you down the road. Thank you.